Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. Yeah, and whether it's physically happening or emotionally happening, it's the same thing, right? We emotionally feel suffocated, like this person is suffocating us. We can't move. We can't do anything about it. No one else is doing anything about it, like you're speaking about the enabling. And I think it even goes deeper than that because my grandfather was a sociopath and he abused my mother and her siblings as well. And God knows what happened to him, right? So it was just generation to generation to generation. And then he preyed on me and other children in my family as well. Hi, Survivors. I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. Yay, another episode in Happy Birthday, Collier. <laughs> another year around the sun. Yes, and I got you the LaCroix. I brought that over to you. Good times with LaCroix. You got it for a couple weeks now. <laughs> I'm, I'm stocked up on LaCroix or LaCroix or however you pronounce it. Um, I'm good for the moment. I'm good. Yeah, and this is our, you know, for our audience, uh, this is the first episode that we've really filmed in my house. I mean, we had Rita Isabel here, but we didn't have any, like, that was a, that was a, <laughs> that was a mess. This is a lot more controlled, but uh, this is the first time we're sitting in my living room and we recorded with our guest today, who is? Kimberly Shannon Murphy. She is a stunt woman of I believe 20 years in the industry, at least 20 mm -hmm. years in the industry. And she's done so many amazing projects from What Happens in Vegas, The Lone Ranger. She's worked on Savages. Yeah, Jack Reacher, The Hunger Games, Men in Black 3, Night and Day, and you know a, a ton of stuff. She's done a ton of work. And she's very close with Cameron Diaz. And you guys had like a whole conversation about this. Oh, right? yes. About the goop salad at Crunch or like this, the Crunch goop salad. Yes, that's it. I was very confused by these things. But, you know, she has a really, uh, a really intense story. And she wrote a book called Glimmer, A Story of Survival, Hope and Healing, which is about her journey healing herself from sexual trauma and abuse that she suffered at the hands of her grandfather. You know, obviously this deals with intergenerational trauma and others were also abused. It's uh, it's wild. But I mean, obviously it has a, a bright side to it. She came out okay. And, um, and she's sharing her story with us today on the podcast. I think it was really tough. I'm happy to have those moments in person. And if you are on our Patreon, you could see those moments in person that we had. So I just love connecting with her. I was able to give her a hug afterwards. We cried, had some good moments. It was even better to have it in just like, you know, that camaraderie. Yeah, but it's a it's a tough story. Let's let her, you know, let's get into it. What do you think? Yes, let's get into it.
Kimberly, thank you so much for coming on. Why don't you start to share some of your story and why you're on Survivor Squad today? Okay. Thank you for having me. Um, I, my name is Kimberly Shannon Murphy. I've been a stunt woman for 20 years and recently wrote a book last year in May, 2023. It came out about my childhood abuse that I suffered at the hands of my grandfather, my maternal, um, my maternal grandfather from the ages of three to 11. He died when I was 11. And I wrote the story for survivors who were suffering the way that I was suffering to just sort of bring hope that there is healing on the other side and that it doesn't have to be your life sentence when you're, you've been through something like that. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. So you said the abuse started when you were how old? Three is my earliest memory. Unfortunately. We have a lot of survivors that come on this program and Tara and I have both extreme stories, but unfortunately this world is littered with people who have suffered sexual abuse at the hands of a parent, grandparent, you know, brother, sister, uh, you name it, uncle, aunt. When was it that you started like really realizing that this, this had happened to you? It's interesting because now that I'm in the phase I'm in, in my life, I'm no longer speaking to anyone in my family, mm -hmm. which happened quite recently. It all, it all stemmed from me getting my book deal. And then everyone slowly started falling off one by one. And now that I'm in this space, I have revisited a lot of what actually I did remember um, in my childhood when I had my memories or I thought I was having my memories, I was 15 when I first told my mother that I was having these flashes. But I actually do feel like I was aware of what was happening to me, but I was very, got very good at disassociating when it would happen. So it was hard for me to speak about it because nobody was doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. And the abuse happened on Christmas and Easter. And we lived really close to my grandparents. So my parents were in the home. My aunts and uncles were in the home. There were adults in the home that weren't doing anything about it. So when that happens to you, it becomes really confusing when you're introduced into the world like that, because it feels like this is what family is. This is what we do. Even though I do believe that my gut was telling me that it was wrong. It didn't feel good. I hated my grandfather. I didn't have any, I know a lot of people do struggle with that. If it's their father that abused them or somebody that they actually love. I never had that with him. I felt hatred for him always. So sometimes it's difficult for me still to put the pieces together about when I actually, did I actually forget or did I tell my mom and no one did anything? Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting, too, when you have a family member that kind of enables other people's behavior, it doesn't make it a safe space. Yes. And I know for you, you had fainting spells, right? I had asthma. Asthma. Okay. Yes. Do you think that that's a part of that trauma, in a sense? Completely. I, did, I don't have asthma. But when my grandfather died, I... The day I went back to school after his funeral, I had an asthma attack um, on the playground. And it was so bad that they had to bring me to the hospital and I had to get adrenaline shots. And then they gave me an inhaler, but I don't have asthma. 
And actually, when I spoke to Dr. Gabor Matei about that, you know, he speaks so much about the mind and the body connection and that that's such a huge thing. And it makes sense, right? Like it, I couldn't breathe. And so many of my memories, I was suffocated. So I think it was just my body remembering what he had done to me. And it was just coming out literally in an asthmatic attack. Oh, wow. I'm like, when you say suffocated, I, I'm like, that made me have a flashback. <laughs> it's all good. Don't apologize. I think that's a part of the feelings you have mm. when that goes down. You're like suffocated, like you can't get out and you can't mm-hmm. escape it. Yes. Yeah. And whether it's physically happening or emotionally happening, it's the same thing, right? We emotionally feel suffocated. Like this person is suffocating us. We can't move. We can't do anything about it. No one else is doing anything about it. Like you're speaking about the enabling. And I think it even goes deeper than that because my grandfather was a sociopath and he abused my mother and her siblings as well. And God knows what happened to him, right? So it was just generation to generation to generation. And then he preyed on me and other children in my family as well. So that's what happens in families like this until someone's willing to stop it. And it manifests itself in other ways, right? So I have other sisters. You watch how they then parent their children and it doesn't mean that it manifests itself in sexual abuse, but it manifests itself. The trauma comes out in other ways, whether it's how they parent, how they treat their kids, because they're parenting from their seven-year-old self or their 10-year-old self that got stunted in the abuse and was never able to fully form their brain Yeah, because it was just literally, you know, it's what happens when the trauma happens to you. So... Yeah, it's crazy how the brain also compartmentalizes that trauma. And then later in life, you're like, oh, now I have these memories. That you can access. Yeah. 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 Was it like a certain part of your trauma or like a certain part of your life that kind of uh, brought these awareness to you, brought this awareness to you? I think when he died, I felt safe to say it. It was a few years after he died and... Even when I told my mother, I completely watched her leave her body. Like she was not there with me. And she literally ran out of the room when I told her it was, I'm like, I think we were watching a Lifetime movie and it was about this woman who was having memories about her father. And I said, mom, I think something like that happened to me. And she just like left the room. And when she came back, she said, I'm going to take you to my therapist tomorrow. And I was like, you have a therapist? No idea that she was also experiencing memories at the same time about her father which she then shared with me later. So he did it to your mother as well. Yes. I don't know that there was anybody that he didn't do it to. And nobody obviously called him on this ever. No. There were things that happened. I did a lot of digging when my memories came up and through my 20s, I wanted to make sense of something that I still will never make sense of. And so I started calling relatives and trying just, you know, it didn't make sense to me that nobody saw anything or no, there was no sign that anyone was yeah. like, okay, he's weird. This is strange. And then I started gathering little stories about him 
And, you know, my dad says something to me like, yeah, I, I used to have to pick your grandfather up um, in the middle of the day and um, at a strip club. And I was like, okay, that was weird. My grandfather was an architect, but he actually never had his license. He worked under an architect who then died. And then he just like, Grandfathered in. (laughs) He used his license, but he never passed his test. Yeah. But he was extremely successful and made a lot of money. And so I think that was part of why nobody questioned him. Sure. Because he created this life for everybody that was really comfortable, that everybody really liked living. And so if they questioned him, then there was the chance that that life was going to fall apart. And my grandmother who was completely aware of who he was and what was going on, really liked getting her nails done and, and her hair done and all the things and showing everybody that we were this perfect family and that, you know, we had the best Christmases and, and that's who my grandmother was. She was a complete narcissist. And that was more important to her was the appearance of what we were than who we actually were. I'm only like slightly laughing right now because I'm like, oh, that's my family dynamic. And it's funny that you mentioned that you went to other family members to get answers from. Mm -hmm. I literally went to my abuser's daughter because I'm like, oh, he seems to have a strange relationship with her. I wonder if anything happened to her. Mm -hmm. And then that kind of blew up everything. But it's like, you don't feel safe to go to that person and confront them. But everybody wants you, if this is real, why don't you confront them? Yeah. You know, grooming is a real thing. And he groomed everybody around him, including my grandmother. But she was an adult and allowed him to do that. So I don't, I don't feel bad for her in any sense of the, in any sense of the word. But he groomed my mother and her siblings and us and So we were just one big dysfunctional family. And, you know, there was a point after my book was written that I really had to look at my whole family system for so long. I just blamed my grandfather and my grandmother. You know, they were these horrible people, which they were. And this is what he did to me and all these things. And now with all the work I've done, I've really had to shift and look at my parents and how neglected I was and how if it wasn't for them, not. Hey, movers. Did you know that one in five Americans has learned a new language on their bucket list? If you're one of them, make 2024 the year you finally check it off with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Designed by over 150 language experts, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are your passport to speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Real people, real conversations. That's the Babbel way. Babbel's tips and tools are not just lessons. They're companions in real-life situations. The approachable, accessible content is delivered through conversation-based teaching, ensuring you're ready to shine in the real world. Before Babbel, I couldn't imagine effortlessly ordering food, asking for directions, or chatting with local merchants, and all without consistently checking a language app while I'm on vacation. But Babbel makes it easy, providing the practical skills you need for real-life scenarios. Struggling with pronunciation? Babbel's got your back with speech recognition technology, helping you perfect your accent and sound like a native speaker in no time. Hola. Hola. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash collier. Get 50% off at babbel.com slash collier, spelled 
B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash Collier. Rules and restrictions may apply. If they did their job as parents, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. I wouldn't have gone through the trauma because my mom would have taken care of me and my dad would have taken care of me and neither one of them did that. And I think that's what's so hard for people because if they look at that, I think they feel like their whole life will crumble. Yeah. But it's no life at all is what it is. Yeah, no, I tell everyone, I'm like, you know, the reason why that person can't look at this is because it's going to change their whole reality. Yes. And that's a really hard thing to go through. Yes. You know, but hey, if we don't call it out and we keep on letting these people hang around, then more trauma happens and chaos happens. I feel. Yeah. And the more kids are hurt, which is the biggest part. That's the hardest to look at for me. So you essentially confronted this abuse at 15 yes. with your mother, mm-hmm. but you weren't, spe- were you s- specifically aware of what had happened or you just thought after watching that Lifetime movie that I'm one, this is very familiar to me and it's very uncomfortable mom. Yes. And I didn't know who it was at that point. Got it. I just had flashes of like a tall man, but I didn't know who it was. But that didn't take me very long. I feel like it was a week and I knew that it was him. There was that psychologist that was in the 80s that was very adamant about, and I cannot remember their name, but was very adamant about children who had gone through sexual trauma. It was almost like it was forced and forced memories. Oh, Um, the false memory syndrome. The false memories. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Was there any of that that came up for even you as you grew older that maybe you false memoried it? or that, or your family maybe try to gaslight you in a way, or? So do you know the story behind that whole thing? No, no, no. So Pamela Fried was a woman who came forward and accused her father of sexual abusing her. Mm -hmm. And he created this entire foundation called the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. Interesting. To basically say that her, his daughter was lying, that he never did this to her and literally created a foundation, which is insane, but it just goes to show you the lengths that people will go to, to pretend that they didn't do anything. She went on to become, I think she has like three PhDs. Now she Mm -hmm. teaches at Stanford or Columbia. One of those, I'm I'm probably wrong about that, but one of the Ivy league schools, um, and speaks about it, but that whole foundation was shut down and debunked. And the whole thing was like, so it was bullshit. It was bullshit. Interesting. Complete bullshit. Yeah. And it was so, and that was actually happening when I was having my memories. Thank God I didn't have the internet then, because if I were to look it up, I probably, it would have totally messed me up. But later I did when I was able to, but it, it, you know, when you have your memories, there's so much doubt in your head, right? Because you can't believe that somebody's capable of doing something like this to you, a child, someone they're supposed to love, all of the things. So of course, if you were to read something like that, you're going to, you know, there's many times where I would have a really heavy memory and, and think to myself, oh my God, Kim, you're making this up or this isn't, this can't be true or all of the things. But, but what my body would do when I would have those memories, whether that would be, I'd be in the bathroom throwing up or mm-hmm. I'd be shaking uncontrollably, not be able to leave the house, not be able to leave my bed. Those things don't happen to you if you're making some story up about 
you sure. know, about somebody abusing you, yeah. right? So it's like we have so much science now that shows how it manifests in your body. And that was a really horrible thing that that man did to his daughter. And the fact that she turned around and became a doctor and did what she did with it is, That's amazing. is really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't, like I said, I don't know a lot about that, but I do know. So my father on top of being a murderer and murdering my mother also molested my two younger cousins. And he was actually going to be arrested for that crime a year before he murdered my mother, but they couldn't bring themselves to like testify against him. So the charges went away. And I think a lot of that had to do because this is the late eighties. I think a lot of it had to do with that whole false memory sort of narrative that was being created during that time period. Completely. And I think that a, a lot of families use any way they can use excuses to, oh, he can never do that. And especially when you talk about rich and powerful people, mm-hmm. as you say, your grandfather was mm-hmm. as the patriarch, taking care of the family, yes. doing all the things mm-hmm. that the man is supposed to do. Right. It becomes an uphill battle. You're almost like Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the, the mountain in a lot of ways. So, after you confronted your mother, like what happened? You said it took a week to sort of process it. She brought me to therapy, her therapist's office the next day, which was equally as traumatizing for me because I didn't even know what therapy was. And there was this woman and she was really just sort of, you know, tell me everything you remember. And I was still trying to piece it together in my head. And so I didn't last long there. And, and then I started in my own therapy and, um, told my, my mother told my father, my father didn't believe me, which was horrible. Um, which obviously made me second guess myself, but now being an adult, I know the reason my father didn't believe me was because he couldn't look at the fact that I was abused and he was in the house and he did nothing about it. So if he was to look at that, then he had to look at his part and all of it. So that he wasn't able to do that. And still, to this day, he believes me now because of how many people came forward, not because he believes me, <laughs> but just because of how many people came forward. My grandfather left confession letters after he died. They were found. So, you know, ultimately, not to say that was helpful in a way, but it does give you some sort of when you're struggling with it, like I was then. It was kind of nice to ha- to know that that he had written what he did down on paper. Um, did he specifically write these as, or is it like a journal entry that somebody found, or he specifically wrote these to confess his sins before he died? He wrote many letters, so it wasn't just before he died. He was just writing the things that he was doing to all of the kids, basically. Was it girls and boys? Um, Yes. And he hid the letters. So it wasn't like, I don't think he was writing them for anyone to necessarily find them. I think it may have been part of what he was just doing for himself. Yeah. Whether he enjoyed writing it down so that he could reread it. I'm not really sure what was going on in his brain. Or maybe he did it to process what he was doing. I mean, because obviously there's a lot of things in this world that I think are evil, but I think that is like one of the top things that you can do to someone or a child. 
I wonder if he was doing that to just, uh, instead of going to a priest or going mm. to, you know, his confessional to himself to sort of alleviate the guilt, which is very strange to me yes. in a way, because you would think after a while, how many, how many individuals do you think in total were there? My mom's one of six and I'm one of four. Um, and there was other cousins and things around. Did it ever go outside the family as far as you know? Probably. I don't, it's interesting when people talk about pedophilia and think that anybody was saved from that person. I just don't agree with that. No, no. I think if somebody has the capabilities to abuse somebody and they have the chance to abuse somebody, they're going to do that. And especially when you're in a family that's so dysfunctional because you don't, I mean, that's your first trauma, right? Is you don't have the, you, you, there's a lack of adult support in your life. Otherwise the perpetrator would have never abused you and they can see that. Then I've watched so many things on, um, I watched this one guy being interviewed from prison who was a pedophile and he was a soccer coach or something like that. And he was explaining how he picked the boys and he picked the boys. He would watch the ones that fathers were never around that, that didn't seem to have parents that like showed up to pick them up on time, you know, that they were absent parents. And those were the kids that he preyed on because he knew that they didn't have parents that were going to do anything about it. So if you're in a family system like that, I don't think there's anybody that's safe from that person. That's the very definition of a predator. Mm -hmm. Just specifically, it gives me just chills in all the worst ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you're saying that too, because there's so many single moms out there, single parents, and they're trying to do it all. And like just, those kids in my mind are so acceptable to that because the parents trying to do two parts, you yeah. know, I feel like you, you can be a single parent and be a really good single parent yeah, and be really aware and keep your kid really safe. I do think a lot of the children that are abused come from parents that were abused. And that makes sense. Yeah. Well, if I just think back to like my mom, my mom was always working and she didn't see anything happen with me. And, you know, at times you're like, how could you not see yeah. this? Yeah. But there, people are so groomed, especially by that abuser. Yes. And people become so used to abuse where yes. it just becomes normalized. And I actually love that you we're on with Nicole LaPerola, the holistic psychologist, because she talks about in her book, like how to do the work about how you need to have boundaries with mm -hmm. these toxic family members. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you've done. Yes. Yes. And my boundaries had to be no contact for me because what I was realizing was happening once I had my own daughter, who's now nine, that things were happening within my family that were so dysfunctional, just situations that were affecting her, that were hurting her. And I just got to a point where I'm like, I didn't do all this work just to let her be subjected to all of the unhealed versions of my entire family, because I'm watching how my grandfather's abuse has played out in each one of my family members in their own way, because everybody 
plays it out in a different way. Right. Yeah. And I just couldn't be around it anymore. It just wasn't healthy for me and it wasn't going to help heal me at yeah. all. <laughs> well, and then I can imagine bringing your kid around and then you're mm-hmm. in a triggered state and you're like, get away. Yeah. <laughs> Go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too, when you come from a dysfunctional family, what everyone accepts, right? Because it's, it's how I sort of put it is what my grandfather did was this horrific, horrible thing. My family isn't doing that, right? No one's sexually abusing anybody. To my knowledge, I don't think that that's happening, but it is manifested itself in dysfunctional ways. So if you're not doing the work and you're not healing, you're not doing any favors to your children by bringing them around these family members. And that's just the point that I got to. When did all this start manifesting itself self in you? Uh, I mean, I'm assuming as a young adult, you went through maybe a re- rebellious stage or, I mean, how did, what are some of the ways that your trauma worked itself out? I mean, obviously you went into stunts. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's one of your healing processes, but what were some other things? Did you, did you encounter self-destructive behaviors? Were alcohol, drugs, things like that? Or was it more of, I'm going to go and kick someone's ass and, and learn, how, learn how to fight and get a black belt and things of that nature? Yeah, I did a little bit of both. Um, I was a cutter. I was bulimic. I did have like a bout with drugs in my 20s. Um, nothing crazy, but mm-hmm. um, definitely not healthy and just really bad relationships, obviously, you seek out your father and you try to heal him through your relationship, which never works. Yeah. <laughs> so I did that for a really long time. And, um, my one person in my family, my mother's sister, oldest sister, who was actually the first one to come out and call my grandfather out on his abuse when she was nine. She told my grandmother, this is what he did to me when he was putting me to bed. My grandmother talked to my grandfather. He dismissed it. That was that was never spoken about again. She was a very big person in my life that I was able to go to and talk to and and help me heal a lot. And she got Alzheimer's probably 15 years ago. She died about two years ago. But I believe that she got Alzheimer's because of she couldn't live in her body anymore. So okay. it was just like too much pain for her. And she was kind of like, mother nature. She just, she took everybody's pain. She just like took it all. And it was never about her. And it was always about everybody else. And she wanted to fix our family and she wanted everything to be okay. And I think ultimately it killed her. And this was the spiritual one. Yes. Okay. And then you thought she had like a friend that just hung out at her house for a while or something. Wait, what? Like in the book you mentioned, you're like, oh, she had a a friend that like, And you didn't like yeah, piece it together. She was gay. Yeah. Um, yeah. My aunt was gay. And so back then it wasn't really spoken about. So my aunt, Sean, who was her partner for a really long time, they lived together and it was very confusing for me. No one talked about it. Of course. I'm like, Oh, you guys share a bed and all of those things. <laughs> and interestingly enough, I called her, my aunt, Sean, who I still call aunt when I was writing the book to ask her, you know, was there anything that ever happened with my grandfather that was weird? Because again, I just couldn't, and I still can't swallow the fact that nobody, there was nothing that was happening on the exterior for people to see. And she said, I was there one Christmas and he tried to get in the shower with me. 
Mm. And I was just like, okay. And she said, and I told him to get out and he left. And she said, I got dressed and I went down to the kitchen and I said, we're never going to talk about this again. And she said, and I got on a plane and I, cause we were in New York. I got on a plane. I went back to California. And when she told me that story, it was just so interesting. A, that she thought it was okay to tell me that story. Not that I don't appreciate knowing that, but that she could have say, you know, all of those things could have saved so many kids if they were spoken about like the way they should have been. See, that's why I think for me, and I don't know for you, I've gotten so vocal Mm. and I'm like, anything that I see that it's not right, I want to speak up because I, my memory started coming back about my stuff when I was 29 and started to process it through EMDR because I had to go through all my other traumas. Did you forget everything? I blocked it completely out. So when it happened, were you kind of out of your body or did you like when it was in front of you, did you understand what had happened or you were just completely confused? I was so confused. I thought the memories, I thought like I was having fake memories and I'm like talking to my therapist and I'm like, am I making this up? Hmm. Am I like not, like, I don't get it. Like I can't make sense of this right now. And it's just crazy because, you know, large figures, how you said the large figures, Mm -hmm. that's all I could see. Like Mm -hmm. there was this one time and it talks about it in the podcast, but they're like, allegedly this happened. One of my family members (laughs) came into my room and opened up the window and picked me up. And then I remember my sister waking up and screaming and then him dropping me. And then I started to piece all of that together that, oh, I know that person who did it to me. But for the longest time, Mm. all I could see was a dark figure. Yeah. You know, so I know that memory happened to me. But then I go back to all the memories of me feeling certain sensations. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why do I have that? And I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of like hip pain at times. Yeah, that's where you carry it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like times where I'm at festivals. And I'm like, I literally can't walk right now. Wow. Because it just, you know, the body holds that trauma. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Yeah, my hips are the same. When I get worked on, if my hip, it's very, but it makes sense, right? It's the hips and your throat. Yeah. Because it's closing of the, you know. Yeah, yeah and you're like, I want to just do this so you don't yeah. touch me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and you kind of get frozen there and that's where the pain is. Yeah. When you were going through all those memories coming back, Mm. were you angry at points? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was a very angry teenager. Yeah. This concludes part one of our two-part episode with Kimberly Shannon Murphy. Can't wait for part two? Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes. On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad. 